My guest is James Belfour, an accomplished film producer, investor, and CEO of Dogfish Accelerator. Dogfish Accelerator provides seed money for a small group of innovative film producers who will develop their projects with experienced mentors from the film business. This model was inspired from the tech industry, where teams of entrepreneurs get small investments to create startups that might develop into a successful business. The way Dogfish Accelerator came about uh, was since 2009, I've been running my uh, film finance and production company, Dogfish Pictures, where we would invest into independent films and also you know, provide different types of producer services uh, originally on set. Uh, and then later, uh, focusing more on business strategy and development uh, for, for independent films. And uh, the accelerator was kind of my reaction to uh, my experience as uh, a, an angel investor in independent film. Uh, I, I think it's, it's no surprise to everyone that you know, investing in independent film is an extremely risky industry. Uh, the thing that's surprising is why would anyone ever want to do it more than once? Uh, and because you know, uh, I wanted to make a career out of uh, working in independent film, I wanted to be a producer. My my background is is largely creative. Um, I I constantly stuck with it through through thick and thin, going through you know my 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 first set of of projects, which were. Uh, you know, larger budgeted uh, indie films with, you know, high profile casts and, you know, full blown agency support and, you know, tons of foreign pre-sales, kind of your standard uh, mid-tier, you know, five to, to, you know, $15 million budgeted indie films. Um, and taking a small, small uh, uh, financial position on, on those films and working on them and, you know, uh, realized while, while doing all of that, of course, you know, things aren't, aren't working, Thing, things are, are kind of too big as far as budget-wise on these films. And so, you know, began exploring a, a second strategy of investing in films, you know, in the $500,000 and under range and uh, with uh, 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 later films even, you know, under a million dollars, but, you know, between 500000 and a million. Um, and, you know, what I began to, to notice a lot uh, with these smaller films, uh, as well as through kind of my own uh, personal studies of you know the the startup world, the the, the tech industry here in New York, uh, and then also uh, while beginning to get my my MBA at NYU, uh, I began to notice that the reason why a lot of these smaller films were working was because they they really were approaching it more as an entrepreneurial venture. Uh, and part of it was because of the, the, you know, the financial constraints of the smaller budget. But uh, another large part of it also was just the, the strength of the producer team, which is something in the, in the startup world, you know, everyone is always looking at the, at the strength of the founder team, you know, the strength of the entrepreneurs. You know, do they have the chops to execute what they're planning on creating? Uh, and looking at the film industry from, from that perspective of, you know, the, the producers are the people closest tied to the actual business, uh, what, I, what I began to notice was, you know, uh, we could learn a lot from the startup world. And as I was educating myself, you know, found out about accelerator programs uh, through uh, first time through this book, uh, Do More Faster, 
which is uh, about and written by people uh, associated with the uh, Accelerator Techstars. Uh, and I just kind of became really enamored with the model, uh, spent some time in Boulder, Colorado last summer working for Techstars as an associate. And then, you know, while out there, just realized we really can take this model and apply it to independent film. So we kind of took a step back from what we were developing as far as you know, Dogfish 2.0 and uh, went forward with the idea of, of taking this model and trying to create a stronger business infrastructure for independent film. And uh, what are the different stages of your accelerator program? Like, how is it structured so you're able to provide the most value for each individual entrepreneur? Cool. Uh, so first off, what we particularly focus on as far as I think the processes that need stronger you know, business management and development, uh, it's legal, accounting and reporting, marketing and branding, uh, and sales and distribution. Uh, these are all things that you know, are kind of at the forefront of an entrepreneur's mind when developing a tech startup. You know, the, the dollar one and dollar two spend in a tech startup is legal and marketing. Uh, an independent film, you know, legal is spent, you know, only at the very last minute when it's time to bring on board the investors and to quickly paper the deal. And then marketing is not even spent by the by the production and the founders of the film. You know, it's, it's spent by the distributor uh, much further down the line. Um, so really, the, the way the way we help, uh, you know, streamline these processes is by using kind of a, the standard seed startup accelerator model. Uh, it's highly mentorship-based, um, so our, our program is divided into uh, three months, uh, and each month has a, has a separate focus. So the first month is mostly dedicated towards mentorship and mentorship meetings. We have, uh, last I checked, close to 125 uh, different mentors that are industry leaders in film, in tech, startup community, in the investor community, um, in events planning, kind of... Uh, Anything we can we can get our hands on, both on kind of the macro level of setting up a full blown production company, and also on the micro level of you know individual projects that will be made. Um, front loading as much as that mentorship as possible, so we can carry through the entire program um, and add the most value with all of these different processes, especially from a lot of our uh, perk providers and and uh, service providers. Uh, we're lawyers and accountants and post facilities and tech companies uh, making offers to the teams in order to you know, help them cut costs and also to help them just run a much more efficient company. Um, second month of the program is dedicated towards uh, building, uh, building the company, building the infrastructure, uh, getting everything uh, as papered and, and close to ready as possible, uh, still having those things that are going on during the first month and also during the third month. Uh, what uh, the third month, what that is mostly uh, geared towards is uh, fundraising and developing your pitch. Uh, at the end of the program, we have a big uh, pitch day where all of the teams get in front of our larger network of uh, investor or mentors and uh, present their ideas in order to continue the conversation and to really bring their, their company to the next level. Uh, so throughout the program, we'll be doing constant uh, pitch practice and, and pitch development particularly in that final month, really honing in on it. So it's a, a they become a well-oiled pitching machine. So, you know, it's, um, I saw a video, I think it was from Techstars, 
and uh, it was a kind of a there's this, uh, this one guy and this, a woman, and they're assessing this uh, pitch for a I think it was a music startup, and it's really interesting how they broke it down. And the guy really killed it, but they're saying exactly where he faltered, and it's like this kind of optimizing this uh, process, which I found very interesting. Yeah, was that the uh, the next big sound? Uh, yeah, I think that was it. I was like, wow, this you know, is really. I found it real fascinating how they're able to like see something that even worked well, but also seeing certain you know challenges and being able to figure out maybe in the future. And as I feel that's you know in film, it's it's important to create that uh this structured approach to uh, presenting uh, projects because a lot of producers don't go to business school; they go to film school, and it's a different mindset. Yeah, exactly, and and that's just something in general why I think that that's important and the type of materials we've been asking for throughout. Uh, uh, the application process for the accelerator, you know, it wasn't until the second round of applications that we said, okay, give us details on your actual projects. Uh, it, it, it is trying to put the mindset more in, you are pitching a company. You're not necessarily pitching, you know, uh, what your film is going to look like and be and who's going to be in it. And, you know, here's a bunch of, of pretty pictures and you know, really more of kind of a project overview rather than a business overview. You know, that, that's, I think, the, the, the huge difference, you know, uh, a, a tech startup pitch that was made by a filmmaker, really what it would just be about is whatever product they're developing. You have nothing as far as market or strategy or revenue sources or revenue streams, uh, even competition. You know, I think the, the, the closest thing, you know, that uh, is inside of these kind of standard uh, pitch decks and business overviews from from uh, filmmakers is comparable films, and most of the times they're they're not even good comparable films. They're you know they're studio projects, or they're just the runaway hits, or it's you know yes that, that was an incredible indie film, but that was you know the third project from this team when you're trying to make your first project. You know, l looking at that is kind of the only real business metrics that's provided in a in a deck. You know, it, it, it holds almost no business weight, you know. And so I think really by, by trying to, to shift the focus and the mindset to have it be, you know, company focused and also business focused, that's really what's going to attract investors. You know, I think if you can get someone in the room to begin with, you know, they have a passion for film. You don't need to tell them why they should be as passionate for your film compared to anyone else's, because there's really no shortage of content in this industry. What there is a shortage of is viable business opportunities. And that's and, and, and you say uh, viable business opportunities. I want to be clear, it was um, I, I didn't completely get the end uh, projects that would come out of this uh, program. I was, I was wondering, is it uh, traditional films or the innovative new approaches to like, the entertainment business as a whole? Uh, it's it, it's definitely the the latter, you know, um, because everyone isn't really coming in with just a single project. Uh, it's it's kind of looking at what you ultimately want to create and how do you want to go about reaching your audience and monetizing your audience. That's definitely the largest thing. And looking at at the current application pool, you know, there's a there's an interesting range from, you know, following a more uh, traditional model, but understanding you know, the, the way the current industry stands as far as making sure they are, they are exploring direct and digital distribution outlets as a potential, uh, you know, first source of revenue over 
traditional theatrical distribution. Um, and still also looking at festival runs and all rights sales as potential possibilities, all the way down to the far end of the spectrum to teams that are building their own distribution platforms. Uh, and will be using their distribution platform not only for their, their own films that they want to create, but to also uh, uh, have it be a platform for the, the niche type of films that they want to be distributing. Um, so it, it's interesting because, you know, I think in the, in the film industry today, um, there, there really is only one way that films are, independent films are, are getting revenue. Um, for the most part, and that just comes from the upfront sale. Um, it's very, very difficult to see any overages uh, on an independent film, and there's you know infinite reasons. You know, from the the cynical conspiracy theorist of well, distributors are lying and they they just don't report numbers, and so you'll never see it. All the way down to it's just hard. You know, there's there's huge PNA spends. You know, the 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 demand in order to get certain content requires a large minimum guarantee, and because of that, you know, the distributors are are in a larger hole than the production even could be. Um, so, you know, despite all of that, you know, I think what's what's interesting is there are a lot of teams now that are saying, well. You know, we understand that that's the way right now that that most companies are starting to and most productions are starting to to get revenue. However, we we start to hear you know case studies like you know uh, indie game the movie is is the the most touted example right now, of of a group of filmmakers that said you know what I I am going to reject all of these deals because we know we can make more. And then going and doing it themselves, you know. There's soon there's going to be a lot more Shane Carruths in this industry, really kind of you know attacking every aspect of the life of their film, from coming up with the idea to you know full on exploitation. And you you mentioned that you know there's the innovators and in distribution, and I think it's a lot of have to do with access. That now with technology, it's a lot cheaper to create content. I mean, I guess some of the challenges is to monetize it. Uh, just uh, recently, I spoke to Jay Jolie from Cinecube, and he questioned the idea of the term producers being part of an accelerator program for low-budget projects. Because his opinion, directors are like the programmers. They come in early to build a uh, prototype, and then business people eventually come in to figure out how to monetize it. Do you feel that producers on the low budgets play a important role, or do the, the director could wear all the hats and generate the interest and then go from there? I think it, it varies, but uh, I definitely think that producers have the strongest, you know, correlation to actual business and therefore returns. Uh, I think I think you know the the two big aspects I look at, you know, when when I when I was investing with the second strategy of Dogfish Pictures, and the way I, I, I definitely am looking at the industry now is it's the producer team and the script um, followed by everything else. Um, and that could slightly be viewed as anti-filmmaker, but instead the way I like to view it is, well, if you have an incredibly strong filmmaker, then you know, you're just looking at an incredibly set up business with an incredible piece of art, and that's just a win-win. But you have to look at it as there, you know, there are some great, incredible independent films that are getting made with great filmmakers and great ideas that are making no returns. And then you have, you know, uh, you know, Santa Paws and random and you know sci-fi movies, you know, Mega Shark versus any other giant animal 
that are you know insanely profitable ideas and the content is pretty terrible it's low quality no one you know really cares about it but people watch it because it's hysterical and it's just out of control and it's far out there but it's an incredible business opportunity so it's really kind of what is where can that intersection of art and business be where you are the producer teams are saying okay this is a filmmaker and this is a budget range and this is an approach and this is a strategy that can make sense and we can monetize and so they're, let's green light this. Let's let's do this. You know, if if you're if you're just a filmmaker trying to make a film, then you know at the same time what you're also going to be doing is you know pushing the business to the side. You know, I think that there really needs to be a dedicated business team and a dedicated creative team to to each project, ideally to each company, where the creative team is just off constantly making films and constantly making content and. You know, working within the economic restraints that that you know are are you know upon them, but you know the the business team meanwhile can just be doing tons of different things from marketing and branding to beginning to develop an overall distribution strategy for the for the company. You know, regardless of the specific film that the creative team is working on right now. You know, I think it, it does need to be kind of a, a, a stronger marriage because, you know, going in blind, just making films, you know, it's the, the easiest way to just end up with nothing but a film. I, I see what you're saying. You know, is, uh, I think Sinecu is just kind of like, in a sense, this producer throws this wide net that catches these ideas. But eventually for these ideas to become businesses, to become films, they need that business infrastructure. So it's almost like it's like a... You know what I'm saying? It's, it's aggregating all these concepts, but eventually you can't get to the finish line without, the, without producers facilitating all the other layers of marketing, legal, and everything else. Yeah, exactly. All right. And um, so as you uh, go through all these you know, submissions, do you see any patterns regarding the type of people who applied? Hmm, I, there, there, there are some interesting patterns that we began to see uh, right off the bat one one of the ones that uh, I, I don't I don't want to say it's 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 surprising but it was you know it, it definitely you know uh, got me grinning was just how how many of the kind of top tier teams that we were looking at were you know female run or majority female uh, uh, the, the company consisted of majority females um, that's something in general that I think, you know, the industry right now is talking a lot about the issues of female filmmakers and how it's more difficult to raise financing if you're, you know, a woman than a man. And it's something that, you know, it's, it's, it's a delicate subject, I think, especially because it's, you don't want to have it be, seem like a, oh, poor me, you know, we, we, we as, as women are having troubles in this industry. Instead, but what and what these teams are showing is that these are, are women that are kind of saying, you know, screw it, we're badass. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna kill it, and we don't we don't care what anyone thinks, and we don't care that, you know, people are saying that that women are having trouble in this industry. Um, we're we're not gonna sit and complain. We're gonna actually do stuff about it, and we're gonna try to really push the boundaries as far as possible. And that's been some of the, the most amazing things. You know, they, these teams really are pushing the boundaries and honestly taking more risks, um, which I think probably is, is a reaction to 
you know, these, these, these kind of uh, limits or walls that, that, that women are constantly hitting in this industry. Um, another definite distinct trend um, is the amount of direct and do-it-yourself distribution strategies. Um, almost, you know, every single one of our you know, referenced uh, at least at some point in their application that, you know, direct distribution is something that is going to be very important to their overall company strategy. Uh, you know, whether it's the only company strategy or even if it's, you know, we're going to develop this and then we're going to attempt to go to a festival and enter a market and have a big sale, but at least we'll have this backup. Uh, I think that's interesting because that will definitely shift the focus of uh, negotiations with traditional distributors, um, you know, and you know that's something looking at you know what Ted Hope was doing with ATE, and uh, you know just looking at at uh, a lot of other you know interesting distribution labs um, that that are are starting to to pop up. Um, you know, direct distribution is something that you know is definitely going to be uh, how filmmakers and in independent cinema will be distributing in the future. Um, one other thing uh, definitely uh, worth mentioning was uh, probably new media and uh, new business models. Um, companies that, that not, even, not even looking at it as transmedia, but, but looking at it as you know, developing content for a specific platform. Um, that's something that I think is very interesting because you know what we start to see now with you know Netflix making their own content and Hulu and Amazon making their own content. Um, we're seeing platforms making content, you know, kind of doing the exact same thing. They're saying we're building a platform. We know how this platform will reach, and so now we have to develop specific content for our platform. Well, you notice that with uh, Machinima, or even I mean, in the past, uh, Zynga which really grew out of the pipes of Facebook. So I think you, you could create a relationship that's very successful if someone plans accordingly. It's, it's almost like could somebody create a whole entertainment company that focused just on Twitter or Tumblr and it would be, it would be cost efficient and there wouldn't be a lot of competition on a high quality content. Yeah, exactly. And that's something which, you know, the, the conversations are starting to rumble all over the place now where, you know, there are companies like Tumblr or even, you know, BuzzFeed and, and Huffington Post that, you know, are, are saying we want to get into the content game now. Uh, we, we want to, you know, have our own type of video, media, film content. Uh, that that we can be distributing, and what's interesting about that is, you know, these are these are, are companies, these are organizations, and these are, you know, online publications that have ginormous reach, and they don't have to spend anything on advertising. You know, advertisers pay them. It's it's almost kind of the opposite of what traditional distribution is, where it's you know, okay, we well, we acquire content now, now let's figure out how to exhibit it. Instead, really having, you know, kind of a, a source of, of an audience saying, you know, we want to give our audience more. Well, and, and you noticed, you know, um, you know, I know uh, Brad Miska, he's produced horror films and he runs Bloody Disgusting, you know, so you have like this great like horror film website that has huge amount of fans of the site and you have this community that has built or even Todd Brown, you know, the producer from X, you know, who runs, uh, was a Twitch and and I think it's a great idea is you're bringing together a community. It's like, you know, I used to be a concert promoter and I like to be able to put on great 
at, have great acts, you know, perform even unknown ones when I was younger and I was throwing these shows. But I want a big audience, and I think what what better way to do it is in create content that brings them into the room and then be able to show them something. And I think it works perfectly. Yeah, totally. And um, now when we talk about building, uh, you know, just kind of these communities and all these new tools for distribution, are film distributors still necessary? Because if you look at it, you have producers that could use Tug, VHX, and all sorts of tools to get their um, work out there. And in a sense, you can almost predict if someone's going to buy a ticket to see a movie and almost pre-sell theaters and take the risk out of four-walling it. So I was wondering, what what thoughts does uh, film distributors play uh, in this new world of film? I think it's a matter of scale, really, is is the big thing that a traditional distributor could could play a role in. Um, You know, obviously, when it comes to theatrical distribution, yes, you can use something like Tug. Um, and I'm a I'm a huge fan of Tug and think that you know they're they're only at the at the tip of the iceberg of of, of what they're sitting on with this you know uh, theatrical on demand type model. Um, but uh, when it comes to traditional distribution, it really is it should be viewed more as a partnership rather than kind of uh, an exit or a sale. Um, that's something you know it 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 it, it could be used for saying uh, you know the the content we're ultimately creating and the library developing we're going to build it and then we're going to sell it off in a large exit to a large distributor, um, but I think what the the way traditional distribution uh, and independent film the how it ultimately will be affected is you know the types of distributors that are good at planning events that are are good at, at, yes, getting people into the theaters, but not necessarily relying on the model of, you know, all these ancillary uh, distribution platforms. Uh, and that's mostly because what's, what's ultimately going to happen, you know, in the next year or two is uh, the, the aggregators, which all of these distributors need to work with in order to, to get the film on iTunes and, you know, it, because you know you need to get the film on iTunes, the aggregators like like Gravitas and New Video and Quiver, you know, they they make sure they get every other uh, digital distribution platform because they can then also, you know, transpose all of the files to the correct formats. You know, a distributor, you know, in house isn't isn't doing all of that, so they need to work with an aggregator, and the aggregators now are saying we would rather go directly to the filmmakers. And if that happens, then what you know a, a distributor is really only good for is the act. Uh, so because of that, it's, it's really going to be the companies that can continue to generate a profit on a small theatrical run are the, are the distribution companies that I think will be the ones that will remain in the future. So looking at, at a company like uh, Drafthouse Films, uh, which has an incredibly strong brand, an incredibly strong audience, they have a subscription service for all of their films, which I'm proudly uh, a, a member of. Uh, and, you know, they, they plan lots and lots of events. You know, when, when I was in Austin last year shooting Prince Avalanche, uh, I'm so upset that I, I missed this one event and that I wish I, I, I knew about it uh, earlier. But they did a, a full-blown demolition derby, blew up every car when they were done with it, and then showed Road Warrior. And, like, that is just the coolest thing I've ever heard of in my entire life. And like I would absolutely pay twenty dollars to, to go do that and to go see that and to experience that. And you know, even if it wasn't Road Warrior, if it ended up, you know, that that would have 
like Bellflower was being distributed, I would absolutely go see Bellflower, you know, regardless of even if it was a good movie or not, if prior to watching it, I was going to watch a bunch of cars explode um, in real life. It's um, and, and you said something that I found interesting. You didn't say screening. You said an event. And I think that, um, you know, I've been to Alamo Draft House. It's amazing. I mean, great food, milkshakes. It's, it's very cool. They put together a scene. And I think that the, the movie theater business is forgetting that if it's social, if it's on the weekend, what can you do that you can't do at the at, at home on Netflix? And I think that w- there needs to be more effort at the building a community like you see in Alamo Draft House or in LA, you see in Cinefamily, where they're really making an effort to have a very strong fan base that's going to keep coming repeatedly. And I think that's a challenge in film, is that in film, largely, you have to keep earning the trust of uh, someone to go to the theater. But with television, you already hooked them, or subscription model, you already hooked them. So there's these uh, businesses that's repeated with film, you have to like earn that trust again. But if you have a community, even if the movie isn't great, like you said, they're going to be coming back because they're coming back for that culture that they're tapping into. Yeah, like that was something uh, the I think the IFC Center here in New York is probably really doing it the best as far as a, a, a cinema uh, with their curation and, and really kind of knowing their audience. Um, when they had this whole Kubrick, Kubrick uh, uh, retrospective uh, uh, simultaneously with the release of Room 237, um, like, you know, first off, that alone, like everyone was running to see, you know, all these incredible Kubrick films, you know, like on film, uh, which I think is also an important thing because, you know, it, it, it will be a, a, a niche event type thing watching movies on film. You know, it's never going to fully disappear despite the fact that everything's going to be digital by the end of the year. Um, and, you know, then all of a sudden you look at all the other films that were playing there at the time, like Upstream Color and Simon Killer. Um, uh, I'm trying to remember, you know, a couple months ago it was playing at the IFC Center. But I, even the fact that I, I could name Upton Teller and Room 237 and, you know, Simon Killer as, as three movies that were playing at the IFC Center two months ago just kind of shows that what they're, what they're trying to do is, is to excite their, their specific audience. Um, you know, around the same time, I remember I went to the, uh, the Angelica to, to see a movie and like the theaters were empty. This was for like, you know, a much bigger tentpole film. And like, there really wasn't as much business there as like the IFC Center, which was like impossible to get into almost any screening. And you have to say, well, why is that? You know, these are smaller films than anything else playing at the Angelica. You know, some of these, you know, filmmakers are either known just by cinephiles or not known by anyone at all. Yet, you know, there's, it's, it's impossible to, to get into anything, you know, what, how can that be? And I think, you know, the, yeah, the large reason why is because, you know, IFC is in the business of filling their seats with their specific niche audience. You know, that's something that to me, if I was, you know, uh, a distributor trying to save costs in advertising, I would try to make sure that, you know, my movie quality was one that the IFC center would want to have because they fill their seats, you know, and I wouldn't have to advertise at all just as long as it's in the IFC center you know, people will run and see what's playing there because they, they trust the judgment of those curators. You know, that's what's really going to have to become important when it comes to, you know, uh, uh, theaters and events. You know, who, who are the people saying, we want to see these movies? No, it, make, it makes perfect sense. So I was thinking, so, you know, I guess with a subscription model, 
it's it's very powerful because you know you could spend more money to hook somebody because over a lifetime you could monetize that uh that deal a lot a lot more than a one-off right so you just you could put more resources into to getting that and i was thinking what if if you could have um like you know vice or blade discussing all these cool you know blogs and websites where they could have like a monthly movie or, or whatever it is or a museum that does it and it's a subscription as people have real tap into the love of it you could get less people but i think that if there's some way to have a subscription model i think it could work what are your thoughts on that approach i, mean, I think it's fantastic you know i you know with with the uh the draft film subscription model for example i i think it's like 125 dollars for the year and they send you uh, nine or twelve movies. I, I totally forget. I don't even care. I just want them all. Um, literally, based on how many films they've they currently have acquired and where I started my subscription, I bought movies that they haven't even bought yet. Um, so I, I'm literally, you know, saying to Alamo, to, to uh, you know, Alamo Draft House and you know, Draft House Films and that whole family, you know, I trust what you're going to make, and I am absolutely going to watch it. No matter you know what you what it is, um, you know that that's something that you know uh, you know in the in the music industry there used to be all these indie labels that whenever they would sign a new a new band everyone would listen to them. You know that's something that I think needs to develop in, in film as far as creating stronger brands, and then you can have a subscription model in that. And, and you could do a subscription model for uh, VOD, and also you could attach a subscription to events that you have access to. I mean. I've been to uh, some of the events that Vice has thrown. Uh, There's uh, some in San Francisco that are just amazing. And I mean, that music and film. And I was thinking, you know, what if that subscription model also gives you access to, like, what if Pitchfork Media had, like, monthly music documentaries that went on tour? I mean, a lot of people would want to go see them and, you know, have the social experience. And if they weren't able to make it, they'd also watch it on uh, VOD. So I think that that, that some of these big uh, uh, brands like Vice... I think that'd be great, you know, or, uh, you know, whether or not they're even any cool news or anyone that has that large audience that you could just tap into. I think that you could do subscription if you could create a community around, because the community is there. You're just taking them into the physical world and back and forth. Yeah, exactly. Now, uh, when you talk about a community, we could also talk about the filmmakers building a community, which is hard. It's hard to, it's hard to build a community while you're doing your day job, while you're trying to make the film. It's easier, obviously, when you look at Huffington Post, which has tons of staff constantly generating new content, so it's hard to do that. You know, it's not you can do that overnight. So I, I was, you know, I look at that the filmmakers, you know, have a lot of challenges to take some time of their day to also build their own community, but also know the importance of it because I've seen uh, on crowdfunding sites that the filmmakers that have created a web series or a comic or a podcast, they've been a lot more successful raising money. So I was wondering, you know, if, if you feel instead of pitching traditional investors, which could take years and may never be successful, should producers spend more time trying to create the next great blog or trying to create the next uh, comic just to build that community so they could eventually leverage that for, um, you know, self-distribution and then uh, successful crowdfunding? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's, that's extremely important. And, and it's something that you're also seeing uh, – with uses of, of, of crowdfunding now, you know, a lot of the teams that applied to the accelerator laid out uh, crowdfunding plans um, and would do it in, in, in two ways. You know, one kind of doing a, a small, easily to accomplish crowdfunding campaign in order to, you know, uh, 
uh, uh, whatchamacallit, uh, in order to, to uh, I'm totally blanking on the word I want to use right now. <laughs> That's fine. To excite uh, their, the, the current audience um, and to, to, you know, yeah, get $20 out of them um, that, that mostly will go towards, you know, sending them uh, some kind of gift. But really, it's, it's a way to, to get that first core audience of the people that, they, that are already excited, that they know they can constantly be updating, and they know will definitely watch the film. And then second, using it really as a marketplace to, to you know, sell your film directly to fans, you know, setting it up so, you know, the, the digital downloads and DVDs and packages that you're sending to them after the film is already shot. You know, it's it's just a way to really pre-sell your film and to show traction as far as an audience wanting to see it. Um, but you know, crowd, crowdfunding aside, you know, yeah, I think filmmakers do need to have blogs. They do need to to be constantly engaging with their audience, constantly producing content, both you know, written and film and audio. Um, anything they they can do to just constantly get their audience, uh, you know, uh, excited about what they're doing. Um, you know the 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 issue with with you know traditional filmmaking is that it could take two years between films. You know, even if it takes only one year between films, and you're probably you know killing yourself as far as uh, uh, you know the amount of work you're probably doing. But so so even if it is a year between films, that's a year of your audience sitting dormant. You know, waiting for you to put something else out. You know, you need to be constantly engaging with them as much as you can because that's also how it will grow. You know, and what that is is it's it's marketing, inbound marketing. It's, it's a lot of practices at the startup is where every single startup on their website they have a blog. You know, they're trying to become thought leaders. They're 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 trying to to develop you know a, a brand and a sense of awareness. You know, either with their own community or even just within a, a larger or larger niche community. Um, or just a larger non-niche community. No, it's 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 it's, it's very important. I um I interviewed the founder of uh, Pledge Music, and he said that he had a system where he could gauge how much money an artist should shoot for. You know, when they want to raise it. I mean, they don't do it traditional crowdfunding. It's through selling pre-selling albums, but they would know what is the kind of uh the rough amount by basically how engaged the fans were, and it wasn't always about. How the size of their social network and the followers on it, it was actually how engaged they were. So I think you can almost calculate the, not always, but you know, a lot of time that for crowdfunding, you can almost see the level of engagement on Twitter or whatever following, even if it's a small amount, if they're really active and actively commenting, you probably have a better chance of doing it. I mean, there there must be, event, hopefully eventually someone creates it where you can gauge what is the amount of money you should try to shoot for based on that level of interaction. Oh, yeah, that'd be, that'd be cool. And that's, I mean, I would, I would, I would love to see that because it probably would be some really awesome, interesting data science initiative, which I would totally, yeah. I, I think that's, I think that the Pledge Music uh, founder could potentially apply his tools to film if he wanted to. I think that's, I think he has the, the right metric to to do that. So yeah, I think it's I think it's extremely important that people engage. I mean, have you heard of uh, the Lizzie Bennet Diaries? That sounds so familiar. Um, what? So Liz, so Lizzie Bennet Diaries was uh, a web series and was a uh, it's it was this you know it was this 
is this huge phenomenon that had 26 million views. Very well done. This is is this whole story, and um, it was it was done for no money online, and it was over a whole year. Uh, it was releasing this short form content, and then eventually the creator said, "Let's put together in a uh, in a DVD package, and let's you know put on Kickstarter where people can almost pre buy the the package." And they shot for sixty thousand dollars, and they end up, you know, getting four hundred sixty-two thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. Wow! And that was out of seven thousand, about seven thousand backers. Okay, and it's well done. It's not, you know, what I'm saying they're not peddling junk. This is a, this is a well written. It's a funny, you know, show. But you look at that, and you go, hmm, seven thousand backers, and you and you think about it, and you go on these other crowdfunding campaigns where it's like some filmmaker who hasn't made for money for a few years, and he's been running around pitching investors, and it's very challenging, and they get nothing. So it's almost kind of like you could almost look at these interactions as friends. The person you grab a drink with more is a person you might drive to the airport. You know, it's like these like, what would you do that extra step for? So I think people have to figure out how many touch points or how they continue that relationship because the next level of asking for money is actually like you know asking to help someone move or whatever it is. It's more of a, a real investment in that relationship. So I think that people could look at Lizzie Bennett Diaries as a an example of leveraging those uh, relationships that are earned over time versus this last minute Hill Mary to try get money. Yeah, no, I th- I think that that it, it it's also something. Uh, uh, Talking to people about in the in the startup world about uh, something like AngelList uh, and why why you would ever want to put your your company on on AngelList. I think the main reason why is because you want to get your project, your company, your film, your whatever you're trying to raise money for in front of as many eyes as possible, uh, and that that's what I think is important. You know, you know, what, by doing by doing uh, crowdfunding, you're literally saying to the world, world invest in what I'm doing. You know, yes, when you're trying to pitch investors, it's extremely difficult. And so, you know, something with crowdfunding, and this is again why people are scared of crowdfunding, because anyone can do it. Um, yeah, so, you know, if, if that, that, that makes sense that, you know, the, the best way to, to ultimately get, get the largest uh, uh, crowdfunding campaign possible is through, you know, this audience engagement. Um, and that's just something that kind of goes even further, you know, if you have a strong Twitter following, and yes, you'll end up closing a, a large uh, uh, crowdfunding campaign. But then on top of it, you know, after you close the large crowdfunding campaign, you have even more than just the, the you get, you know, the, the original, you know, following that you had in order to that much larger number. You know, now, now all of a sudden you have all these other random backers that happen to just come across what you were doing that are now part of your audience and part of your, your community. And then, then on top of it, you know, you know, you you even even if you didn't hear about the project to begin with, you you hear something, you know, about yeah, the Lizzie Bennett Diaries, you know, went for sixty thousand and got four hundred thousand, you know, that's new. Now you can get PR, you can get, you know, you can expand to people that maybe they didn't know about the film uh, or the project when you were crowdfunding or even prior to crowdfunding when you were building your your social media presence. But now they can say, wow, this thing really has people you know going crazy over it i should keep it on my radar um that's that's one reason why um uh the 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 crowdfunding platform uh seed and spark uh which i'm a huge 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 fan and supporter of uh what's really interesting to me about that platform is you have the capability of tracking a project that's crowdfunding 
even if you don't uh, uh, donate to the to the campaign. Um, so what's what's cool with that is you really are creating an entire community and audience around your film that goes further than just the crowdfunding. Um, yeah, yeah, and and it's it's very important. And now to kind of a controversial subject uh, that has kind of polarized the indie film community. Uh, it's about Zach Braff uh, using Kickstarter to raise money, and then you know eventually going to getting traditional financing. What's your thoughts on that? Um, it 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 depends. I mean, honestly, good 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 for Zach. <laughs> you know, he 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 did it. You know, the 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 logic behind it. You know, it 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 kind of makes sense for what they're trying to do. Uh, looking, at, looking at that that traditional model of, you know, kind of larger budgeted independent film finance, you know, really what you need to do is you need to get as, as much pre-sales as possible and then get that banked and then, you know, try to find gap financing to, you know, go against the remaining pre-sales. And then you find, you know, maybe you have other, other debt and loan financing and then you have the equity pool. And really, what this is, what you know, something what, what Zach Braff is doing, and you know, uh, Slate on their blog has done a, a good job of, you know, uh, speaking about how, how crowdfunding is, is developing in this fashion. Is it's just become a new source of soft money. You know, it's the same thing as getting tax incentive. The same thing as as banking pre-sales. I think it's 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 definitely filling a hole as far as you know in the in the past five years or so, banks have really you know uh cut down on on how much per dollar they're they're banking uh your pre-sales and tax incentive and they're just completely uh staying away from gap and anything that's uncollateralized you know this is a way to again kind of lower the amount of equity you ultimately need to raise um but you know i think the 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 issue with with you know, using it in this way, regardless of if you're using soft money from a crowdfunding campaign like Zach did, and even if you're you're doing it uh, by by taking the tax incentive and getting it banked, and taking the pre-sale financing and getting getting it banked, the issue is that everyone on the financial side, their interests are completely misaligned now, um, and you know, looking at it prior to what 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 Zach did and saying, okay, we have a a bank that's doing the pre-sales and a bank that's doing the tax incentive and we have a gap financier and we have a, a mezzanine loan financier and we have an equity financier. Whoever is at the top of the totem pole is only going to do what's in their best interest because it, 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 is, it serves their best interest. You know, so if that means you, know, you ultimately are going to sell the film for uh, enough to just cover one financial position and it's going to screw everyone else over, you know, that higher financial position will do it. So what what I think now now throwing uh, crowdfunding into into the equation, it, it makes it even crazier about the about the misaligned interest because now you have this giant position, and in Zach's case, like a two and a half million dollar position of not only are their interests not aligned with that of the equity investors that are technically behind them, but their their interests are not financial reward at all. So it's it's crazy because now you know you know how can you as a manager properly serve all of the interests of all the different investors? You, you really can't. Um, so so that's something that I think is you know it's it's scary for me. Uh, definitely this 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 new type of thing as much as it is uh, uh, exciting. 
because you know now all of a sudden well you know what if the film maybe wasn't worth as much as they they are closing financing for and you know maybe the, the extra funds they got on 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 kickstarter are funds that you know are all completely extraneous you know it it, it really kind of screws up the valuation of of each project you know but uh, that that being said, you know, if you can crowdfund uh, a, a, as much as possible, uh, and you can you can get two and a half million dollars crowdfunding, it's like well, that's such a difficult thing to stray away from. But at that point, it's okay. Well, how can you how can you structure the the financing in a way that it really won't throw everything off? You know. So if you had the choice as an investor to pursue crowdfunding as an option almost co like I wouldn't say it's co-financing because it's you know soft money but to provide significant uh part of uh, the budget of the project that you're producing would that be something that you'd be interested in, or because of those challenges you brought up you would stay away from it and again it would depend if you said that it's crowdfunding and straight equity I probably uh would definitely explore that um, simply because now, now what you're what you're saying is you know okay there's one there are two financial positions one is crowdfunding and the other everyone else is completely aligned and on the exact same level so now what you're really talking about is okay let's say you know fifty percent of the of a you know million dollar budgeted film is crowdfunded so what you're ultimately doing is saying we're we're going to create a million dollar film with $500,000 of equity. Um, that is an exciting and enticing because, you know, as long as, long as it's, you know, uh, still a, a million dollar film, um, you know, you're kind of looking at, at, looking at it as, you know, this is gonna be a million dollar film that will have the look and feel of a million dollar film but cost 500,000. Uh, that's kind of cool. The thing that's cooler to me and what I've seen through, you know, my own experiences is, if you can just still add that production value at, and grab that out of thin air without having to, you know, actually crowdfund for it, um, you know, that that's something that would is is what it does is it really challenges the creatives to to problem solve when there's an issue. So making a five hundred making a million dollar film with only five hundred thousand um, dollars probably would lead to a a you know better creative product than you know, uh, a million dollar film that is $500,000 in equity and $500,000 in soft money that you can still, you know, use that with. It, it, it makes the filmmakers more resourceful. You also saw the Canyon, uh, the one with, um, you know, that uh, that was done. I think they raised $150,000 on uh, Kickstarter and then they had additional outside investor for 150 k uh, So it was entirely a $300,000 budget. And they were, you know, they were able to, to make it work. But I, I see the resourcefulness that, you know, if you have less money, you could do more. Or so you don't just throw the money around. Or, so I think, it's, I think it's really based on the producers and if they are able to um, respect that this extra money, you know, is not something to go crazy with. It's doing the most with it, you know, versus just kind of like ex being wasteful, you know. Exactly. You know, that's just something in, in this industry. There's a there's a huge amount of, of waste, you know, in every, every process from, you know, production, uh, actually, you know, uh, shooting the film all the way down to, you know, even even the way a lot of the, the business practices are, are taken into account. 
you know, the fact that everyone is a, is a freelancer, and, and this is kind of the, the mission and philosophy behind uh, Dogfish and the Accelerator, is that by everyone being a freelancer, it means that every single time you start a new film, you have to start the whole process over again from scratch. So, you know, the, the fact that on the last film, you, you ended up having a budget that went wildly over budget and was $40,000, none of that matters and none of that legal paperwork is anything of value to you when you make this next film. When instead, if it's something that would, it was a streamlined legal budget and you, know, you had these templated documents that go across all of your films, then yeah, spend $40,000 on legal, that's $40,000 on legal for your company. And then if your, your film all of a sudden, you know, if your company uh, is, is making you know, five or six films, then you know, that's $40,000 in legal for five or six films. That's incredible. That's a huge savings. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a workflow operations issue. Um, but yeah, I think, I think when, it, when, it comes with, when it comes to using uh, you know, crowdfunding as, as soft money, it's, you just have to be careful. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a dangerous tool that if in the wrong hands can just kind of further uh, a lot of the existing issues in this industry, you know, with without any kind of, you know, uh, 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 consequences, because at the end of the day, you know, the people who are you're getting the crowdfunding money for, you know, really what they're only looking for is to be able to watch what you're making and whatever, you know, autographed piece of merch you promise them. And so if like that's really what they're, they're going after and that's what they care about and that's what they want as fans, then, you know, what they could be doing, you know, by, you know, without their own knowledge is furthering, you know, a, a, a financial disaster in, in the, the film industry. Like, you know, the, the big thing that we'll ultimately have to see with, with, you know, Zach Braff's film is if it actually makes its money back. If it doesn't make its money back, then, you know, it, it kind of is just falling into the same model that exists right now when you try to make a $7 million uh, film, you know, we have to get you know money from anywhere we possibly can, and just weird, different, and tons of of tiers of financing that are all misaligned. So, no, it's a great point. Um, you know, you bring up that you know it's is it, is this a bubble? Is this thing at a burst? Or is this something that's uh, sustainable? And only time will tell. But uh, just lastly, you know, I really appreciate. Uh, having you on my show and I just want to get your quick thoughts of um, what are your favorite books and blogs or is there anything that kind of uh, informed uh, your own projects as a you know as an investor and as a producer uh, so some of, some of my favorite books, uh, you know uh, every everything in uh, the these uh, you know do more faster uh, uh, startup life startup communities uh, venture deals all that that entire uh, group of books is incredible. Um, the Lean Startup, I think, is also uh, a great uh, book for, for filmmakers to, to read. Uh, you know, it, 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 it definitely you know, doesn't have a lot to say about the film industry, has nothing to say about the film industry, but it's, it's interesting as far as, you know, uh, figuring out how to operate on a, on a, on a lean budget and, and to, you know, random testing, constantly engaging with your audience. There's a lot of, of practice you know, film production companies need to learn from. Um, yeah, I'm a big fan of Moneyball and, you know, books like, uh, a, a book called Super Crunchers, because I'm a huge, you know, data nerd and I like math. Um, and then uh, on the, on the uh, film side of books, um, uh, entertainment industry, uh, economics, uh, Vogel's uh, 
you know, textbook masterpiece. Um, you know, that, that, that's a, a, a huge, 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 uh, incredible read. Um, uh, Adam Hutzing's uh, Inside Track is a, a great modern uh, uh, kind of digest of the way the industry kind of exists right now. Um, and then uh, as far as um, uh, I love Ted Hope's blog, who, who doesn't in the independent film world, you know, I try to stay abreast with, you know, IndieWire and Deadline and Variety and all of that just to just to really see what, what everyone is talking about because you know, despite a lot of it being gossipy or just, you know, this agent moved here or this talent dropped out of that, you know, there ever ever so often you, you, you get some interesting pieces as far as, you know, uh, numbers or, or business happenings in the industry. Um, and you could start to kind of put pieces together of what's happening behind the scenes. Um, uh, magazine. Uh, I really like where where their head is at now, and you know a lot of the new writers and editors that they've been bringing on and promoting. You know, they get a really cool indie vibe. Um, uh, uh, producers behind the film, uh, Blue Potato, which I know they renamed, and I totally forget what the new name is. <laughs> Blue Potato, you could you could ultimately find them and uh, uh, see what 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 they they've been talking about. It's really fascinating. Uh, Slate. Uh, uh, film filmnomics, um, incredible as far as you know what they've been putting putting uh, out there as far as business goes. Perfect. Um, well, uh, do you have any uh, final words uh, about your uh, program or anything um, to that you want to get out? Um, you know, uh, it's a really exciting time for us because we're 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 getting close to to picking those those final teams. You know. We're having a, a a big event for all of our second round applicants. Uh, Dogfish for a day uh, tomorrow. Uh, you know, talking about accelerators, talking about the state of the industry, bringing in a lot of our mentors, uh, walking everyone through a, a, a lean canvas model workshop, um, and you know, trying to find additional ways to kind of give back to both the community that's been you know supporting us as the accelerator and just the New York City indie film community in general. Um, so uh, you know, kind of be on be on the lookout because uh, pretty soon, uh, close to August fifth, we're we're going to officially announce who who got into the program and start to you know have the have the big unveiling of of each of these teams. And you know, I'm I'm excited to see you know both what they come up with and also uh, what what the rest of the world really thinks of them. So all right, great. Well, hey, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hollywood 2.0. You can check me out at petercats.net. It's K-A-T-Z. And you can email me at catsfilms at gmail.com if you have any questions or comments.